communion back in the day. Also, you might want to put your thumb in. Um, you might want to put your thumb in Hebrews chapter twelve because we're going to read just from that to help help us understand a little bit. But uh, before that, if you haven't been with us before, we pray, we sing the word of God set to music, or at least listen to it, and then we'll come back and sit in silence for a few minutes. Audience at home will hear two numbers, and then we'll come back and get in our verse by verse. After that, we leave, and then it's up to you to live your faith. It's up to you to decide how you're going to be a Christian. It's up to you to decide how you're going to worship God and how you're going to treat your neighbor and how you're going to be uh, a, a Christian, so to speak. All we do here is gather to study together, and then it's incumbent upon you, and that's really essential to the faith. No no midweek supports to, uh, to get you through this program or that. The internet is full of stuff you can learn from. This is just so we can study the word together. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, I'm grateful to uh, be able to teach in this group and uh, pray your spirit will be with all of us, that we can discern and can, can deliver according to your will. We, uh, we are grateful to live in a place that we have the freedom to drive up openly and walk in a building freely and to worship you without uh, uh, any sort of involvement by police or government. And we're just grateful that we have the opportunity to live in a place to do that. And uh, we pray for those who don't. We pray for your body throughout the world, wherever believers might be, whatever church they're sitting in today or whatever the church they're not in. We pray for those who are yours, your sons and daughters by faith, through your grace, will walk in the spirit, love others and be known for that love. So equip us now as we consider your word set to music and help us to discern what is being said uh, through scripture in Jesus name. Amen.
Okay, we left off at verse uh, 26, and we've been talking about how Paul has been addressing the improper way that the believers at Corinth were participating in the Lord's Supper, which, which commemorates the death of the Lord, eating the bread and eating and drinking the wine. And, but the believers at Corinth were getting together, and they were having this party beforehand, and um, it was way out of hand, 
and it led to some unfortunate things within the body there. And so he's been, he's been talking to them about that. And we covered that last week if you're interested. He says at verse 26 then, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what uh, the uh, picture is, is that you keep doing this every time you get together. And by eating the bread and drinking the wine, you are commemorating, you're showing the Lord's death by those consumption of those elements until he comes. And, and if he hasn't come, folks, we should be doing communion every time we get together. We should be doing it because uh, that's what the Lord said. And we should have been doing it over the past uh, 2,000 years. Every time believers get together, that they should do that. So we discussed that last week. Now, verse 27, Paul continues to speak of the communion. And he says some things that have haunted people, including myself, for centuries. Uh, it hasn't haunted me for centuries, but it's haunted me. Uh, let's read. Wherefore, whatsoever, excuse me, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. Ooh, it's a big word. Unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. Two huge words there. Damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, Paul says, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. We are not talking there about Ray's wife, Ray, so knock that off. He just nudged his wife. <laughs> I see everything. <laughs> just kidding. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when you, we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. If any man hungers, let him eat at home, that ye would not come unto condemnation, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So he has addressed the problem, and he's given them some final things. Go back to verse 27. It's been a bone crusher for centuries upon people's conscience who love the Lord and are presented with communion. It says it right here in the New Testament. Wherefore, Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink of this cup unworthily, is what the King James says, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That is some heavy, that's a heavy statement. And if we take the New Testament seriously, boy, you can't get around that one. That's what it says. So if you don't believe Jesus has come back, as promised, and you think we're still waiting, and you're taking communion every week, you have to be taking of it worthily, according to the King James, or else you are guilty of the body and blood, meaning you're guilty of helping put Jesus to death. You're guilty of his broken body and his shed blood. That is the teaching. That in the LDS church, for instance, they do what they call the sacrament. It's not wine, it's bread and water. And they, they talk about the worthiness of being able to partake of those elements, and that if you eat of those elements every week unworthily, and I've had these passages as a Latter-day Saint member used upon me, you can't take of it unworthily. So, 
The wherefore refers to verse 26. Wherefore, uh, as often as you eat of this uh, bread and drink of this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink of the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Other translations don't add anything to this. And so let's just leave them as they are. We have a lot to wonder relative to this passage. The Greek word axios, axios, means worthy, means deserving. Axios means worthy and deserving. And the Greek word here is anaxios. You throw that an prefix in front of it, and that means undeserving, unworthy. And that's the word that is used here, anaxios. Was Paul talking about people who were gathered together to party, who were getting drunk and eating without a care for the needs of others and really didn't give a hoot about the Lord's communion as the ones who were unworthy of partaking? Or was Paul issuing a blanket statement that there is a moral worthiness that all partakers must have in order to partake? Is, it, is he talking, again, we, context is everything in studying scripture. So is he talking to the group who are getting together and partying, or is he talking about any individual there or outside of there who personally partakes of it unworthily? And if the latter is the case, can a human being actually be worthy to participate and partake of the elements of communion? What does that look like? Contextually, the purpose of Paul even mentioning the Lord's Supper here is in connection with their improper mode of observing it by tying the party to communion beforehand. That is the context, right? And he's taken the time to illustrate the real purpose and practice of partaking communion. He now steps forward to explain the consequences of partaking it in an improper manner. Now, I want you to just remember this point here. The manner in which you partake of it or the fact that you partake of it. There is a manner in which you do it. In other words, before you grab the bread, do you go like this? That's a manner of taking it versus the type of person you are when you take it. That's individual. What's Paul talking about here? So the contextual view is they had an improper manner they were doing something relative to it that was improper. So that's the contextual view. And while it's really tempting to read and view verse 27 as a standard of personal morality, very easy, oh my goodness, don't churches do that? Many churches, not all. A standard of morality. Uh, this would be improper. It would be unfair. It would be, listen, it's even impossible it's impossible, which is, which is what makes it just so unfathomable that we have allowed churches over the centuries to sort of invite the idea that a human being could possibly be worthy to participate in communion on a, on a personal basis. So I've been fascinated of late being part of this new social media community um, and watching how many people attack other people for things, for their sinful ways as being practitioners of evil, on things religious, on things non-religious, on lifestyle. And I'm always tempted, I'm always at least wondering if the person who's accusing 
is attacking someone else, where is their sin? Didn't Jesus say, look it, you know, pluck out the beam from your own eye? How could we ever look at someone else and suggest that they are wrong with God? I don't care what they're doing when we ourselves could not possibly be right with God in our flesh. We like to pretend we are, and we can do all sorts of things to make ourselves feel that we are, but we're not. Our heart is evil from the base. And if you really let yourself look at it, really look at it, you'll see that. So this always troubled me with an active uh, member of the Mormon church. I'm sorry, I mentioned it a lot with, with uh, Mormon worthiness interviews when I was a kid, that I always wondered, gosh, how does this bishop and the stake president, how are they so worthy? How are they so good? I'm such a, you know, such a masturbatory teen. How are they so good? How are they so heavenly? How will I ever get there? I'm never going to make it. And, you know, and it wasn't until later, but it wasn't much later, that I saw in those very same leaders I held up that they had sin. Maybe it wasn't the external kind of sin we all know that, that we call sin, but it could have been they were judgmental. It could have been they were, you know, uh, mean or stingy or arrogant. But they were, they were sinful, and they were sinful in the ways that Jesus talked more about than the sins of the flesh that they focus on. So, to worthiness and this passage, I'm personally convinced that first, and it's not the only support, context allows us to properly understand the content and the meaning of the verse, and therefore the word unworthily. It's connected to the action surrounding it. Now, unfortunately, this word has caused a lot of personal misery, as we said, over the centuries. As most people reading scripture, um, they read the passage without noticing a very important clue. As, and as a result, they say to themselves, in the context of partaking what is a misappropriated communion, in my opinion, I'm unworthy to partake of this. Just yesterday, I did this. Oh, here comes the elements. Oh, I'm so unworthy. And it's not that it's not a good thing to reflect upon yourself. We're going to talk about that in a second. Paul actually tells us to. But it doesn't have anything to do with a standard you have to be at to partake of the communion of that day or a church that holds it today. So what's the key? The difference is between the adjective and the adverb. That's all it is. It's so apparent. Most persons interpret this as the passage speaks to people who are unworthy instead of these Corinthians who are partaking of the communion unworthily. There's unworthy and there's unworthily. Okay? And so the former believe that the passage is speaking to personal qualifications. And... Um, instead of the manner or fashion in which the communion is being taken and approached. Paul is speaking to the way the Lord's Supper has been approached through this Bacchanalian love feast they've been doing. That is what he's talking to, not the personal qualifications of those who are eating it in faith, by the way. They were eating communion in faith, not in personal worthiness. Paul speaks against trying to become perfect in the flesh in Scripture. He speaks against of trying to obey the law in Scripture. He speaks clearly of us being saved by faith, by faith, not personal righteousness. 
all through Scripture. So this is not about worthiness and unworthiness personally, you guys. Do never let anyone suggest that, okay? Uh, it's your faith that qualifies you to take uh, the commemoration of the Lord's Supper and say, I trust he died for me. I trust his body was broken. I trust his blood was shed. It's faith. You could be at a bar the night before. I'm sorry for these extreme examples, but I have to go really extreme to get the point across. You could be at a bar with another man the night before. Yes. And you could be, and, and, your, and your husband is at home watching the kids. And you can show up to church the next day and take of communion because you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with your personal worthiness. If you can extract that out of the thing, you'll understand why it's so valuable. If you start bringing yourself in, it's akin to walking by the cross and saying, I'm coming up there with you, Jesus. You need my help too. And that is not the proper way to understand what God did through his son for us, you see. So it's the adjective and the adverb. Paul is speaking of the way the supper was being done, and it's such an important clarification. Uh, I think proper uh, exegesis is so important on this passage. Now, we do have to address all that Paul says here because I think there are principles that do apply to us today and should be carried over to the Christian today as believers. And he talks about examining our own hearts. So we'll talk about that. So what does he say again? And I reiterate to them in this context of their behaviors, wherefore, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So let me hit on some of the biggie, what the commentators mean by shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. A daughter, it says, shall be counted guilty of profaning and affronting in some measure that which was intended to represent the body and blood of the Lord. Grotius says he does the same thing as if he slayed Christ himself. Uh, Bretschner says, injuring by crime the body of the Lord. Locke says, shall be guilty of the misuse of the body and blood of the Lord. Rosenmuller says he shall be punished for such a deed as if he had affected Christ himself with ignominity. And Bloomfield says he shall be guilty respecting the body. I suggest the following. The believers who are reading Paul's words here, who continue to do as Paul has told them not to do, were not true followers of Christ. That's what he's saying. Or we could say they had chosen and continue to choose the drunkenness and the eating above over honoring Christ's death and sacrifice. And in doing that, they show that they put their own will and their own traditions and their own pleasures ahead of Christ. And they would have been the type who would have put Christ to death had he walked the earth. That's how I understand the passage. They would have participated in the death of Christ because they are showing that they did not respect what he did in that day and age. Instead, they cared about their own ways. And Paul is saying, let me tell you something. If you do this practice, you are contributing to it, meaning that you would have been one who had put him to death. You're no different. 
because those who put him to death cared about their, their ways, they cared about their comfort, and they put him to death because of it. That's how I see it. Now, the view is certainly subject to being wrong. I, I, I admit that. But after reading all these other views and considering the context, the fact that Paul, Paul tells them, stop approaching the Lord's table in this manner, I stand by it. I think that's what he's saying. Not that somebody personally is unworthy, takes it, and they're guilty of shedding Jesus' blood as many institutions try to put upon their people. Now, next verse, however, is really important, especially to the stance that God wants to direct. He wants to have open, honest, free relationship with all who claim him. And this is so central to what Jesus did. Even Paul brings it all back uh, to the individual here. And placing the individual squarely in the subjective realm of a relationship with Christ. This is what he says. But, he says, I've given you my insight on this. But, let a man, a woman, a believer, a somebody who is partaking, examine themselves. Okay? And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. That is squarely, the Apostle Paul puts it squarely upon the individual, okay? He puts it right back on the person. Let a person examine their heart and see if it's right with the communion that they're going to take. Now, I see Paul as giving a lot of liberty there. And I see Paul as even saying perhaps, maybe, you know, if you want to go and you want to keep getting drunk and eating your food and doing all this, and you think you're right, you examine your heart and then go ahead and eat that bread and drink that cup. I, 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 but I could be wrong. I could be wrong on that, but it seems like he opens it up. But let every person examine themselves. And when you think about that, that's really what it is, isn't it? We have no need for policing. Even Paul the Apostle, I'm not going to police you. You come up, partake of communion, examine your own heart. Why? You're going to take your last breath. No one's going to take it for you. You're going to stand before God. No one's going to stand with you. And you will know and he will know exactly what your heart was about. So he just puts it right back on the individual. And I love that when Paul does it. Because we don't have any need to police anybody about their sin worthiness in this stuff. It's, it's evident right here. Let him so then drink, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourself up to you. There was probably a number, maybe most of them, of that group who were um, faithful. They sought the Lord. They'd been through a lot. They'd been baptized into his death, really. And they had the mark of being a Christian on them. So I think in all probability, most of them just had reverted back to their pagan practices. And Paul was having mercy on them. Paul was just, you know, he knew. Um, so he, maybe they weren't even aware they had done wrong until Paul has pointed it out. So in all probability, these would quickly change their mind about the practice and do it how Paul has uh, established. If they didn't, I suggest that they probably had the same care and love for Jesus as those who willingly put him to death. And that's, I think, the general census. And remember earlier, a week or two ago, Paul says, and these, her these heresies have to exist so you can see who is faithful among you. So when you look around and, you know, Paul the Apostle, witness of Jesus Christ, has established the order. There's a bunch of people who have sacrificed everything to follow him. 
and he sets the order and they follow it and there's a couple who are like we don't care man we're gonna do you know what we want and our minds say we can do it and they're drinking they're eating their nice food in front of everybody and they're going against it it's it's kind of self-evident and those and and that those heresies within the body Paul says are necessary for you to see who is devoted and who is not I don't think we can apply the same things to us today but I think there are principles that are applicable there taken directly from Paul's words first he tells them the fact about their approaching communion and he tells them examine yourselves see where your heart really stands and it's such a beautiful onus that he places on the individual we also notice that Paul does not write and if a person continues to eat and drink to drunkenness in front of others be, before doing the communion don't allow him to do so we don't see him say that at all he goes to let everyone examine themselves that's a free open apostolically driven letter he's writing I mean it's a beautiful thing and after telling them to examine themselves he said and so let him eat and drink of that cup the sense is pretty plain communion in that day was to be preceded by an honest examination of yourself and it was Socrates 400 years earlier uh, according to Plato who wrote the unexamined life is not worth living you remember that famous line Paul was saying the unexamined Christian life is not worth taking communion I would change that 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 is kind of what he's saying and so if you believe in communion today that it's necessary sacrament and if you do you should be doing it every week and every time you get together with Christians until the Lord comes and if you believe that's part of it fine you have that right and license but examine your heart when you do it and really look at why you're doing it and in what sense you're doing it you know um, at verse 29 Paul throws another heavy imprecation their way and he says for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily remember he said examine yourself but now he adds if you drink it unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself Ooh, what does that mean not discerning the Lord's body now he throws in damnation now you know as well as I do in our day and age and going back several hundred years damnation means hell. boom you are damned from any type of progression or movement in your future damnation is used here in the King James remember that Paul was trying to move them to action stop doing these festivals to get them to embrace a deeper reverence for the communion that they were doing uh, but he presents here another uh, qualification or uh, another consequence for partaking of an improper of, of approaching the communion in an improper manner okay returning to the topic of unworthily instead of the personal condition of being unworthy Paul says that those who choose to continue to partake of the elements under these same conditions that's the context and that's I believe what the uh, adverb and verb says adverb and adjective de depict eat and drink damnation to themselves not discerning the Lord's body now this sounds like Paul is saying obviously you'll be damned damned huge word if you do this meaning pretty much you'll go to hell you aren't damned in heaven according to what most Christians teach you're damned in hell so let me let you in on a little secret with the King James these guys crack me up and I read and study from the King James 
There are times when the King James, where the translators will take the Greek word krisis, and they will say, let's use damnation. That's the word we're going to use today for krisis. There's other times when they will read the word krisis, and they'll say, let's use the word judgment. They're going to be judged. Now, in our day and age, maybe not in the King James day and age, maybe they were synonymous, but in our day and age, to be judged by God or to be damned by God are two very different things. But it's the same Greek word, krisis. The damnation translation of krisis occurs 11 times in the New Testament, where the translators decided let's not use judgment let's use damnation the judgment translation occurs over 80 times so they decided judgment is a far preferable word when we're talking about these things you will be judged for doing this but 11 times out of those uh, 91 times that uh, Croesus is used they decide to use damnation this is one of them Translation for us, you get some yokel to get up there, and he says, before you partake of the communion, if you do this unworthily, you'll be damned. The fires of hell forever. If you do it unworthily. Little children are down there, you know, and, and everyone's like freaking out. And then you get those, those bold guys who come up and take it. Which, which is another whole story. To explain this out, it means to be judged. It does not mean to be damned in the hell sense. <clears throat> to explain this a little further, when Jesus asked the Pharisees, how will you escape the damnation of Gehenna? That's what the King James puts there, uh, of, of this place Gehenna, which most Christians translate as hell itself, how will you escape the damnation of hell? The translation really is, how will you escape the judgment that awaits in that physical place called Gehenna over there, in the north part of the valley of, uh, of Jerusalem? And which was a place that literally burned with fire, with refuse and stuff like that. And of course, you guys know that the Pharisees didn't escape the judgment of Gehenna, because their bodies were tossed over the wall into the valley of Hinnom, into Gehenna, which burned, and they didn't escape that judgment at all. That judgment was placed upon them, right? But because the King James translators decided to put damnation there instead of judgment of, in one of these 11 times that Croesus is used, we tie damnation with Gehenna, and we say Gehenna is a symbol for hell, where it burns with fire and it's hot, so therefore the whole thing comes out of that history. In any case, Paul was not telling them that they would be damned to hell. Jesus wasn't saying, how will you escape being damned to hell? He was simply saying, how are you going to uh, miss the judgment of your holy robed bodies with your long curly beards and your and all your tassels that show authority, how are you going to escape that embarrassing condemnation of judgment when people grab your body and throw it over the wall and fall down into that pit that you know is used for the refuse of our community? 
where we put all of our trash. That's where you're going to end up. It's believed, and I agree with it, that what Paul meant is that the people who were not discerning of the Lord's body when they partook of it, that, that they did not see a difference between the bread and wine that they were eating as a party and the bread and wine they were eating as communion. That's what m many commentators think they were, that's what Paul is meaning here. And because of this leading offense, it enables us to interpret that he's talking about the pre-communion parties. And then uh, Paul adds an intriguing message. You ready? For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Okay? So he ties to their doing their approach to communion with being weak and sickly. And it says sleep here. In all probability, it's not Ray's interpretation. It means death. Many of you are weak and sickly, and many of you are dying. That's what Paul assigns to it. So we have a choice on how to understand it, right? That Paul was speaking of a curse that fell upon them from God for unworthily having a party and then taking the elements of the communion without really caring that many of them, because God had placed a plague upon them, were weak and sickly and many died. Or sleep. If you want to be the literalist there, you can say sleep. I'm, not, I'm pretty convinced he means die, but it could be sleep. And we have to decide if that was an imprecation by God upon them, is it still in place today? In other words, if you, are, you want to take the whole shebang literally, if you come to church and we are a communion-taking church every week that we get together and we're doing it in preparation for His coming, and you believe that if you eat of it unworthily and you come down with a terrible cold, it's a direct result of that, people would have to interpret the Scripture that way. Perhaps Paul was speaking to them then. We can say that. That in that day there was a curse upon them for their party environment that they allowed in partaking with the Lord's Supper. Or perhaps Paul was speaking that this is a natural result of the partying that you guys are doing and overindulging in food and drinking of wine like you do in your festivals. That, you know, perhaps you're going to get heavy. You're going to gain weight. Your arteries get clogged and, and, and perhaps you get diabetes. And so you get sick and you get weak. This is a direct result of this type of lifestyle you're following. That's possible that he's talking about something actually that was happening to people then as it happens to us today. We overeat, we overdrink, many of us die. Okay, so Paul is just giving some very pragmatic advice there. And finally, some may suggest that heart disease and diabetes is a curse from God for those who catered to their fleshly desires. In that day, maybe in ours, you know. And this has nothing to do with a curse upon them because of communion. It just has to do with, you know, uh, not living to your flesh. And there's probably some other things that Paul could have meant. I don't know the answer. But I will say this, that the church bride at that time, they were under some real scrutiny. They had to perform to be the bride that the gates of hell would not prevail against. And because they were privy to miraculous spirit-filled manifestations, because they had living apostles with them who were with Christ, we have some things that happen in their day and age that don't seem to happen now. For instance, with Ananias and Sapphira, they tried to lie to the Holy Spirit. They died on the spot in front of Peter. 
boom, dead, you know? So perhaps there was some sort of imprecation from Paul that said, listen, the Lord, I don't, we don't know. Uh, can't say. What we can say is there was a condition present there among the saints that manifested in weakness, sickness, and either sleep or death, and it probably means death, Daniel 12, 2, John 11, 11, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, and 5, 10, all use sleep for death. So it's quite possible he's talking about that's why you're dying too. Paul adds, verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. He ties that to there be sick and sleepy and dying. If you would examine yourself, if you would judge yourself and your motives, you would not experience judgment. You would not be judged. In verse 28, Paul tells them, examine themselves, and I think this is a reiteration of the advice. The reason is, he says, because if we, he seems to be saying, would judge or examine ourselves, then we would not be subject to a judgment. He seems to tie their sleepiness, their sickness, and their weakness to a judgment that's coming upon them from God. That seems to be contextually the most reasonable answer, and it was for that time then and then. And that's how I see it, because that's what he seems to be saying. This passage further supports what I just taught about the word damnation, because Paul doesn't say, and if we judge ourselves, we would not be damned. The King James translators don't use damn there. They use judge there like they should, uh, because it shows that judgment that they faced for their behaviors was not damnation, as the King James uh, suggests in the passages before. So at verse 32, Paul says something that's really comforting, though, okay? So all of that stuff is kind of frightening. And it's important to the idea that their failures as believers was not going to damn them, okay? And that's why I'm emphasizing this difference in words. He says, but when we are judged, but when we are judged, it's the same Greek word, krisis, so it could be damned there if the King James guys wanted to put damned, but they didn't. So they put judged, meaning when believers are judged for the things like this that we do wrong. When we are judged when we, and the things that we have erred in, and, and we continue even perhaps to do these things here and now, he says, ready? We are chastened of the Lord. When you're judged, you're chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Now, this is a different word here, condemned, okay? Damned is arbitrarily used. Condemned is actually something that you don't want in Scripture, condemnation. You don't want to fall under condemnation. You're going to fall under judgment because we will all be judged according to Scripture. Did you know that? will still be judged. Uh, but it's going to be in a different sense than judged to what the New Testament speaks about the end time destruction. It's a different type of judgment for rewards and crowns and things like that. And being a member of the New Jerusalem. Judgment's different. But we will all be assessed. Croesus or Crino in the Greek. But Paul says, but when you are judged, when believers are judged for things that they err in and do wrong, we are 
the judgment is a chastening of the Lord. Okay? That we should not be condemned with the world. Such a big difference here. This is huge. The sense is that though they were afflicted by God, perhaps, maybe, in their meekness and sickness and even death, though, they had though that the apostle had manifested great displeasure in their parting before taking communion and the ordinance, that if they were facing a judgment, it was because the Lord was chastening them. The Lord is chastening. Paul did not want to see the Christians to see themselves as strangers to God who were still going to face his catacrino, his condemnation. That's the word that, the, that fell on the world there. So as a believer today, you are not going to face God's catacrino. You are not going to, and I'll explain what that word means in a minute. Will you be judged? We will all be judged. We don't escape judgment. But I believe that because of context of the New Testament, the judgment's immediate and it is meted out through resurrection, and then it is fulfilled through the placement in heaven. It's you're either in the kingdom or you're outside of it. I think that is when it happens immediately, resurrection immediately, the spiritual body. A judgment happens immediately through the resurrected body you get. Destination is immediately given, and it's done. I think it's been that way for 2,000 years. Other people greatly disagree, but that's how I see it. But instead, Paul here, he just wants to show that for a Christian, for you, if you're sitting at the bar with another man while your husband's at home watching the kids and you're getting sloshed to go off to a night of, of sin, that you will be judged by the Lord and he's chastening you. Very different from catacrinoing you. And the writer of Hebrews, this is where we're going to get to Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 5, threshes through this concept beautifully. And I want to reiterate that to you if you're a believer. That if you have, even if you have sought to follow God in spirit and truth, He still prunes us. He still chastens us. We're not perfect in that state. He will remind us of our failures over and over again. Why? Because He's like a father who loves His children. And a father who, or mother who truly loves their children are going to correct them when they're going off the path. When you see your child riding in the street on his bike without a helmet and, he's, and there's cars everywhere, you chasten the child. Why? Because you care about them. Paul is saying that as Christians who are getting drunk and eating in front of others and not caring about them, the Lord is chastening them, either through their sickness and weakness and death, or it's just through their life itself, but the chastening will come. And that is a promise I can give you from Scripture. God's mouth to your ear, I will say it, He will chasten you if you are His. And it's endless. You don't arrive. That's the thing. You don't arrive and you don't become exempt from his chastening. He just amps it up a little bit. <laughs> because he's forging you as his son and daughter to be in his presence. And so he just keeps ramping it up. And it gets tiresome. But along the way, he is your father and he is blessing you. So in Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to read this. This is about 11 passages, maybe more. He says, 
Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as children? I'm saying to this, you Christians out there and here in the, in the uh, campus church studio. My son, when he says son, he means daughters, sons. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't despise it. Nor faint when you are rebuked of him. That is a strong word, rebuked. He rebukes. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every child whom he receives. Scourges. Do you know what that word means? That's the word that was used for the whips that took the flesh off Jesus' back. What's, what's God doing when he scourges us? He's removing the power of the flesh in our lives from us. He is taking it off us, and he does it sometimes over the course of time, and sometimes it's a smackdown. Let me tell you a true story. You guys, some of you have heard this. Mary and I, we've had different marital difficulties over the course of our lives because of me, almost always. And it's true. And I get I used to be really fiery. And even when I was in ministry up here, I just would just get insanely fiery and mad over things. Well, one, we're in Huntington Beach visiting. I'm visiting from up here. And I was on a visit down there to, to see the family who were living there. And I had a bike and I had a backpack and it had my laptop that had thousands of hours of work in my laptop. And uh, I mean, I, I, I don't even know what was lost. It was so much stuff. I had a Bible in there. I had all my life. I carry all my life in the, these bags I carry with me because I go around and I had it with me. And she and I got in, we were in a fight that night over something, something I was just over the top with. And I was enraged. And night fell and we were on a street called Brookhurst, which is by where we lived. And this is a, this is a community area of Huntington Beach. This is out on the street. There is nothing to be afraid of. And I had had it so much, I took my bike, I took my backpack, I put it on the ground by a wall that we grew up by, and I went around the corner. I was just, I'm done. Put it down, walked. So she follows me and we talk. It's maybe 10 minutes. I come back. It's gone. All of it. Gone. Taken forever the bike but more importantly the backpack never to be seen again it was instant of god upon me boom you do not get to live in your flesh you think your work is so important your thousands of hours in your little laptop i'll show you what i'll do with your laptop and your bike because now you get to walk home thinking about it all Boom, gone. He allowed it. I don't think he caused somebody to take it. I think he allowed someone to take it. And the removal of his protective umbrella from me was as obvious as the night is the day. And I knew in my heart, and I was humbled immediately. And I was broken. I told Mary. And that got me to take a breath and calm down and walk with her and reason with her and hear how out of control I had been. Simply like that. Chastening of the Lord directly, instantly upon me. And it seems to happen that way with me. If I get just a little bit too far, I get a smackdown, and I have to keep learning it over and over, less as I age. But man, it happens over and over again. Because he loves me. I know he loves me as a child. As I know he loves you as a child. 
and he will smack you down to show you you're being a stupid child right now, you see. So he says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he has received. You understand that? We're talking about sons and daughters that God has received as his own. He will chasten you. Verse 7, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. I love that if. You don't have to. I could have turned from God and got angry at him then. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? It's a really great question. But if you, ready for this line? If you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers. So I know that if you're a believer, you are getting chastised in your life by God. I know that God is chastising you if you're a believer because he won't let you go. And it happens in different ways. It doesn't have to be material like mine, okay? He says, but if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, ready? Then you are bastards and not sons. Bastards, that's why I used to use that word on the show. It's in the Bible. You are not his. You're his creation. He knows of you, but you're not his child, right? Furthermore, We've had fathers of our flesh who corrected us and we gave them reverence. Okay, dad, I won't do that anymore. Calm down. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us for their own pleasure. Speaking of our fathers in the flesh, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. What happened to me when he took my backpack and my, and my bike? I was broken down from my haughty, angry state, and he moved me into humility as a, as a son. And holiness returned in some part to this decrepit soul. Partakers of holiness when he smacks us down. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, the writer adds, but grievous. Oh, we can't believe how hard it is. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields ready the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. If you allow him to work in you and you are exercised thereby, his chastening of you, you begin to produce more fruits of righteousness, peaceable fruit of righteousness in you because you have humbly allowed him to work. It's all this reciprocal relationship. It's a two-way street. He's doing it. We respond or not. It's all there. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down in the feeble knees. When you see a brother or sister who is being chastened, don't rejoice in their chastening. Don't think they've done something wrong. In the Christian era, it's not like we're the children of Israel, not like the LDS who believe in the cycle of uh, you do evil, you're going to be punished, you do righteous, you're going to be blessed. In the Christian world, God is constantly pruning and chastising the children who are his to produce holiness in them. So when you see those who are Christians who are breaking and who have struggles, who get sick, who lose their jobs, who have these issues, who can't seem to find a mate or whatever it is, realize the Lord is working with them, not against them. That economy is done of against them. We love to see it the opposite way. That's not what it is, folks. He says it right here. 
Make straight the paths of your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, and let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men. All men. Follow peace. And holiness, without much no man shall see the Lord. Look diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and therefore many be defiled. And he goes on and talks uh, from there. That's Hebrews chapter 12. All the principles the writer of Hebrews speaks of are at play here with the church at Corinth. And Paul is telling them, you guys have turned this into a party. That's why you're, that's why you're sick. That's why you're weak. That's why you're dying. And I think there perhaps was probably a direct imprecation upon them by God, being the bride of Christ, to remain holy, that he was not having it. God was not the wrath of vengeance, but the loving father of the brood. He still is. And as loving parents chastise their children as a means to teach and lead and guide and help, that's what God continues to do with those who are his. Remember, bastards, he does not touch. You ever wonder why? There's so many seemingly horrible people out there who prosper in this world. They have wealth and fame and strength and looks and money and education, and they don't believe in God. This is their kingdom. This is their world. The Christian can expect the chastisement. Now listen to this verse again. But when you are judged, Crino, Crisis, we are chastised of the Lord. When we are judged, we are chastised of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Those two words are important, judged and condemned. It goes back to our earlier comments, speaking of eating communion unworthily, uh, when Paul says those who do will experience judgment as the King James puts it. Well, here again, Paul writes of judgment crino for the saints who had messed up and would not change. But he says that such judgment was different from what the world will receive. That judgment is based in chastisement of the Lord. What the world receives, he calls condemnation. And here's a little trick on the Greek. That is a, that is a compound word. It's catacrino. So when you read condemnation in scripture here, you'll see catacrino, not disjudgment. Okay? You'll see catacrino. Cata means down in Greek. So it means a down judgment that they will, the world will receive. A down judgment. As believers, we receive a side judgment. I'll put it this way. We receive a father putting his arm around us and say, now you have to pull the weeds for a week, daughter because you drove the car without a license, okay? Down judgment is a judge on a bench looking down at those who are not his children, none of this stuff, and saying, this is what you're going to get. Difference. So Paul is saying, listen, you're going to be judged, but the chasing of the Lord is the reason so that you will not be condemned with the world. You might think of God's chastisement upon us as believer as horizontal and God's chastisement upon non-believers as vertical. But we learn from Hebrews that he doesn't really chastise vertically. And that's why he says, if you're not, if you're not chastised of the Lord, you're a bastard. So they are more let loose with their freedom to do as they will. And I see that more than the catacrino judgment that was going to come upon Jerusalem in 70 AD, catacrino, 
down judgment upon Jerusalem and a million one Jews. That fell. I'm not sure it has application to people of our day, catacrino judgment upon them here because they really have nothing happen to them. They are just simply bastards. The children are the ones who get the, uh, the side judgment. So catacrino uh, is a vertical judgment, like a judge sitting on a bench looking down and issuing forth a punishment. And that punishment was promised to come up upon them as a people. And so Paul is saying, listen, if you're being chastised of the Lord, he's yours because he's doing this so that you won't become part of this that's coming. That's how I see it. The same judgment would punish his own. If a judge was sitting on a, a bench, he would judge his son differently at home than he would judge a perpetrator of law. And that's the thing to remember here is we are talking about being under judgment because of the law and being breakers of the law. That plays into everything we say in Scripture. So let's put it into context. God had a people who were under the law, his law, and they were justifiably going to come under catacrino justifiably going to come under catacrino or as paul puts the saints at corinth that we should not be condemned catacrino with the world that you are a separate group and i would suggest that what paul is saying is that god's catacrino judgment was coming and paul is telling believers at corinth don't keep going this route we want you to be chastised of the lord and if he's making you sick and things change your ways realize you're being uh, chastised by him right now pruned because he loves you as sons, and he's doing this because he does not want you to be part of the catacrino that's coming. Down judgment. So Paul was telling them, endure the chastisement of the Lord because as sons you should expect it, and also as a means that you will not participate in the catacrino. That had been described for 1,500 years as coming their way to the people of Israel. It's coming our way with the advent of the Messiah. We wonder today if catacrino continues to exist let me begin just by wrapping up, uh, going to wrap it up in the next few minutes, uh, and ask, does God continue to chastise sons and daughters? I have people who say, no, that's done, it's over. I don't believe that for a second. I would suggest that, yes, God continues to chastise those who are his, as a father chastises his children, and uh, who he loves. When it comes to catacrino down judgment of God upon the heads of people, we have two possibilities since we're living in an age described in Revelation 21 through 22, 5, of being very different age from the former. First, we have to consider the passages we just read in Hebrews 12, especially where he writes, if you be without chastisement, whereof all believers are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. I can't emphasize that enough. And I think it still applies. So in light of this, we might see God, of whom the whole world has been reconciled, I believe, as not dealing with those who are not his children by faith. I mean, he might bless them. He might send the rain to fall down upon them. He might provide them with food and jobs, whatever they're in need of, if they talk to him, if they don't. The good and the evil are blessed by God. They don't have to be believers. In other words, being God, he blesses them and assists them. But since they're not children of faith, he leaves them to their own devices. And since... That is apparent what they want, to be left to their own devices. That's what they get, here and there. They're just left. When we talk to believers, we are talking about people who are truly children. We are not talking about citizens of the world. And the language that you speak to people who are children is very different than the language you speak to people who don't know God. That is why the church and the gathering places for believers is to learn, is the learning place for believers. This is not the place to reach out to people who don't know him. 
because the language you will use for believers does not apply to non-believers, and they won't understand that. We have outreach to people to bring them to Christ. We have evangelicalism to share the word, but the church is not for unbelievers. It never has been. It's always been a gathering of believers to be trained by the uh, apostles' words in the Old Testament to learn how to grow as children and to hear the hard facts about it. But it's not, no, any church that says we are, uh, I don't know what word they use. I think it's, we're mission friendly or we're seeker, seeker friendly. It's a lie. You can't have an effective gathering of believers that are seeker friendly because you're, they're going to hear a message they won't understand. So the evangelicalism of the individual believers talking to neighbors and friends and family and helping them to experience Christ in the privacy of their own bedroom, that is the place where that happens. It doesn't come through the teaching of the word. So when you become a seeker-friendly church, all you're doing is taking people who should be learning and growing in the word, and you're just, keeping, you're just continue every week to call people to come forward to be saved. That is totally incongruent with what the New Testament teaches, and yet we do it. Something to consider. So the point is, however, Catacrino, because of Christ and his finished work, does, does not seem to apply so much as it did to that day when Catacrino did come. So Paul returns to his teaching instructions of believers at Corinthians, and he summarizes his comments with, Wherefore, verse 33, My brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry with each other. Okay? Terry, excuse me, one for another. Terry, one for another. That word terry, ektakamahi, is a word for wait for the other people. That's all it means. Wait for them. Uh, we aren't sure. The commentators are divided whether Paul was talking about wait to eat the love feast. But the verse in a minute is going to teach us that's not what he meant. He's saying wait to have communion with each other. Just patiently wait for the body to come together, the bride to eat this. Whenever you come together and eat, eat communion, wait on each other. Um, the principle is, listen, you're one. You are the bride in our day. You are the body. So a gathering, a body of Christ, do these things, especially when it comes to eating the Lord's table. It seems like uh, the scene before was one of selfishness and who cares what the other people are doing? Who cares if they have enough for their needs? Let's eat, drink, and be merry and then we'll do communion, and we're not going to wait on anybody. We're individual. And at that day and age, Paul tells them directly, uh, show some selflessness. Show unity with each other. Show appreciation for the communion and share that experience with each other. This principle certainly applies and abides with Christianity today, no matter what we're talking about, really. Uh, we try our best, I think, uh, in the spirit of Christ to include people. We wait on people. We see reasons to include, not to exclude. We, when the party's about to get started, we notice that Jim and Susan and Andrew aren't here. And we say, wait, just wait a minute. They're not here yet. You, you wait. It's a principle of love. Not this wagon train is moving on, and if you're not on it, too damn bad. You know, there are religions who operate that way. We said we're starting at 8. Nancy and Sam aren't here. Too damn bad. Let's get the wagons rolling. Paul says wait on each other, right? When I was 11, another uh, anecdotal story. I'll be quick. My parents moved to, from Whittier, California to Huntington Beach, California. And my older sister, she's two years older than me, was mutual age. They had this thing called mutual held during the middle of the week. 
And I was only 11. I wasn't old enough to go to Mutual, but she didn't want to go alone. We didn't know anybody, so we went to Mutual together. And uh, a volleyball game was going on in the cultural hall where all the kids who were Mutual age, half were on one side and half were on another, so about 50 people on each side, right? And um, my sister and I, we walked in and we rested against the stage and watched the game going on. And a girl who was on one side said, you guys want to play? And I was just following the lead of my sister and I just, I looked at her and she said, she kind of gave this response of, I'm not very good. Just, and, and I knew that my sister, she wasn't athletic, but I knew it would have been really nice. I knew even at that age, it would have been really nice if, if someone would have said, come on, who cares if you're good or not? We want you to be on our team, you know, we want you to play. And the girl who asked said, oh, it's okay, come on, come on, come on. And as she said that, an adult leader of the group who later became a major reason how I came to see Mormonism for what it was, that same leader now, much younger, he said, let him stand there. Let him just stand there. That's what he said. And I'm 11, and I knew what those words would do to exclude my sister. I knew what it did to me. I was calling him a very bad word in my head. But my sister was just like, okay. And looking back, you know, I'm actually grateful for this situation because of this guy's attitude, because it opened my eyes to what was in the heart of some leaders. It also showed me to appreciate leaders who would love and maybe stop the damn game. Wait a minute. We have two people we've never seen before here. This game isn't important. It's 50 people against 50. The game's 300 and 298. Let's meet these two people. It's about people. It's about including them. It's about waiting on them and loving them, right? Yeah, so this was the exclusion. Paul says, wait on each other. He could have said any word. He said, wait on each other. I just love that. Verse 34, uh, wrapping it up, Paul says, And if any man hunger, this addresses what he's been talking about for us, let him eat at home. Okay? So the idea of the festival and the feasts, he addresses right there in a line. If you're hungry for food, food, for drink, drink, eat at home. When you come together, wait on each other for communion. The principles apply for us. We might not, in my estimation, have to do all the same things that they were under at that time, but the principles remain. It doesn't matter what's happening. I have to remind myself of this. I'm a, sometimes a, the wagon is moving forward, let's go guy. Lord might have to smack me down a few more times in my life to teach me this, but this is the principle for us to remember as Christians, to show this kind of love that, that Christ has. So the King James says, when you come together, um, if any man hungers, let him eat at home, that you will not come together under condemnation. He uses that word again, again, to show that there was going to be a catacrino. And then he adds, and the rest I will set in order when I come, uh, which probably refers to additional matters that required some apostolic attention. From this, it's evident that Paul had decided to go to Corinth to set things in order that had gone haywire. And I want to wrap today up just by pointing something out. And you got to think about this. And that is when groups of people come together and left to their own devices, we go haywire. 
we go south. We will do things out of harmony to God's will. That's, the, that's what we're learning here. And so God loving the bride and not wanting the gates of hell to prevail against it, provided it with 12 apostles to govern that church and to make sure it stayed together under their direct leadership. Okay? And that leadership was essential, so essential to keeping these disparate groups from going haywire and starting their own stuff, right? Since this is a biblically proven model on how to govern the church, we have to then decide, should we belong to a church that have apostles that govern the same way and make sure that nothing haywire gets out of order and keep in place the McDonald's franchise form of religion because that is how the church was set up. But it was on a very limited, small basis because that could be managed and even that was difficult. Hence all the letters from Paul and Peter and John and James to people to not stop doing this, don't do that. That was a very small church. And it was, but it was possible with them being over it. So you have to ask yourself, well, if that's the way it was, is that what... Is that what God still expects? If he doesn't, then things have entirely changed, folks. And I propose that. I propose there's no way there are 12 men and 470s and a bunch of organizations that have kept the gates of hell from his church. His church was that small church bride, and he took it. Now we have a body and is led by the Spirit, the Spirit whose fruit is love. And we can get together. You can leave here and go to any church around here and enjoy the fellowship of that body. And we get rid of all the auspices that are found there. And, but you got to decide because you are presented. We are presented. The Bible admittedly describes this organization there. If we are still in need of it, where is it? It's not up on North Temple, if you're thinking that. It's not there. And therefore, it's not in an organization that has the same uh, setup that the New Testament did. Okay, comments, questions, insights. Larissimo, thank you for passing the mic. Hi, Sean. Hello. I have a few things to say. I believe you. Okay. First of all, people that come, you were talking about the church is for believers. And that originally it wasn't for... Originally, it wasn't for unbelievers. The way I see it today, and I just want to spew my opinion, which I could be wrong. The way I see it is that in biblical times, the church was, yes, for believers to gather, hear the word, prophesy, and all that. But now in today's day, and probably back then too, somebody comes into the church, not a believer, you know, oh man, I just you know lost my job or something, and I'm struggling. They come in the church. They listen to the word. It changes their hearts. I believe that can happen. I believe it can happen. I believe, of course it can. The word changes people. It, it can it happen. Me. It does happen. But that is not, that, that can't be the governing principle. Oh, okay. Yeah. The governing principle is for believers to be yeah. fed. And it can't, the governing principle can't be to reach out. There's other means for that. Sure. Yeah. I, I get it, the governing. And then the chastening of the Lord, that is hard. That is very hard because I look at my brother he's not a believer you've you met him once yeah, Paul. yeah he's not a believer mm -hmm. and look where he's at now mm -hmm. with his life and look at where I am mm -hmm. 
I'm just a peasant on the lowest scale, working right. hard. That's right. First Corinthians says you will be that way. That's, <laughs> That's all right. Hard. So don't be ashamed. Be be grateful that the Lord but has you dealt know, with you. But you know, since I left Mormonism and the way I view grace now, is so much different, so much better, because in Mormonism you're taught you get the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost they call him, right? And he's only with you if you're worthy. If you're willing to keep, you know, if you're worthy. And then he leaves if you're not worthy. Yeah. That's not the God I know now in Christianity. Yeah. Who, no matter what, through your hard times, through your trials, through your sins, why we were still sinners, sinning, Christ died for us. He takes you by the hand and says, we'll work through this together. Amen, brother. So, there it I, is. I see it differently. Me too. So, uh, I had a few other things, but I forgot. Good points, brother. Yeah. So, anyways, <laughs> I you. feel the chastening a lot, but I know the Lord loves us. So do I, brother. Thanks, Patrick. Is that it? No one else wants to bear their testimony? <laughs> well, uh, Sean, uh, I really love what you said, because in my family, um, let's put it this way, uh, I'm the loser in my family. I don't have the huge house. I don't have the pretty wife. Uh, I don't have the perfect job. Um, uh, I could keep going. I don't have the fancy car anymore. I don't have the whatever. So one day as a believer, I started reading my inscriptions and I was kind of upset because believe it or not, sometimes you believe him. <laughs> but I really love what is it, Psalms 23, no, 32, 23. And he says it's pretty specific. And I love that. He says, the steps of a good man, okay, the steps <laughs> of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Mm. It's not like it's a coincidence. It's not like maybe one day. And I noticed that thing in my life. I remember when I lost my house. I, I still remember 10 years ago. I didn't know how to explain it to my mom or to my family. I remember when my ex-wife left, you know. I remember when uh, I started losing everything. I lost my job. I remember when one day I didn't have any money in my account. I remember all these, according to the society, bad things, but to me it's a good thing because I know that I used to be Jacob, now I'm Israel. You know, it's, it's not about what you have. In real life, it's, Christianity is not, it's not a religion thing, you know. I see a lot of people there. I'm a Christian because I'm a good kid. <laughs> That's so silly. I mean, you're a Christian because all these things are gonna are gonna happen to your life. You know, you have to share things. You have to think in the other person before you think in yourself and things like that. But thank, thank you, brother. Sure. Appreciate you sharing. Anything else? All right. Those are bagels, Michelle. Hi, everyone. <clears throat> is it working? It is. And uh, hold it close to your mouth and please say your name. All right. I'm, Arle name. I'm Arlene, and I am a very grateful um, Christian. I am just uh, I'm overwhelmed by the chastening that God has given me, and it makes me so accountable in my own life. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm wandering. You know, and God puts something there for me to remind me um, that I am worthy, that I am loved, and that He knows my name. You know, that is the 
you know, blessings that I get each day that I receive that I just, um, I'm amazed, you know, the glory. Um, I just want to tell you guys I'll thank you and don't stop believing. He's there. Thank you. Thank you so much, sister. Love it. And thanks for joining us, Andy. Hi, Sean. This is Jonathan. Hi. I wanted to uh, share a verse that I shared on social media today. It was Psalm 46, verse 1. And just to summarize the verse, it says that God is our refuge and our strength. So I feel the chastening of the Lord is to cause us to look to Him during our tough times as our strength and our fortress and our foundation, our rock foundation that will never be shaken. And I do realize that as a believer, I find myself uh, struggling in, in many areas and in, in many ways, as we all do. Everyone has their own unique struggles. And uh, I still continually trust the Lord, knowing that He is good and that He loves us. He loves me so much, um, and in fact, I believe that God loves us no matter what. He doesn't appreciate everything we do or we say, of course, just like others don't appreciate what we do or say, and sometimes they do. But He really does look at the heart the most, I think, and if you will just reach out and hold on to the hope uh, of the Lord, the resurrection, you know, that He's alive in spirit and in truth, that we can find strength and comfort uh, through the good times and the tough times. Amen, brother. Thank you, Jonathan. All right, let's pray. And, uh, Lord, we thank you and are grateful recognition of uh, your hand in our lives. And uh, the things that you do when we are uh, weak and failing, the things that you do when we are strong or as we think we're strong, we just pray that we'll walk out of here with a message that gives us hope and strength to look at you and realize that you are in all things. We have a sad Gracie, our little friend we've been praying for for uh, quite a long time, lost her hair, cancer. The cancer has returned uh, and it's aggressive and uh, comfort and peace for all healing for the for her and for her family, her parents, who must be uh, greatly tried by this. She was what they thought was in remission and not, no longer. We pray for Sandy, comfort and rest, and no pain. Pray for Sandy's family, uh, understanding and comfort. We pray for Arlene. We pray for Andy, our brother who came this morning to, to, to continue to walk uh, with him and receive Christ. We pray for uh, Mary who's driving across the desert right now to reunite with us and uh, we pray for safety for our family members who we care so much about, our children and grandchildren, our parents. We pray for people who are incarcerated, people who are lonely, people who are lacking funds and don't have jobs, people who are physically and emotionally and mentally ill. And we pray that we will be a light and that you will grant us with, uh, with a great deal of the fruit of your spirit, which is love and joy and patience and kindness and all those things that you were when you walked the earth. So help us to go out now into the world and be reassured that we are yours by faith 
and to let go of anything that besets us in Jesus' name. Amen. Take